and adventurous. And the manner in which your word and spirit teaches, stretches, disciples, forms us, um, we're so thankful, even when we don't know how this is happening. So in the stillness of this place, with the sense of wonder that there are many things going around us even now we don't see, we praise you. And we ask that you would open our ears so that we would listen, our eyes so that we would see, that your spirit would inspire us a deep and deep and deeper love for you. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Please have a seat, or if you prefer to stand, you, you can as well. It may be a little awkward. St. Peter and St. Paul's recently, as you know, hosted our diocesan synod from November the 1st to the 4th, and lay and clergy leaders from across Canada came together for the first time in person for three years. We get together to do business of the diocese, our budget, the introduction of new ministries and ideas, uh, hearing from new parishes and plants, what God is doing to be encouraged by God, to worship God, to come back again to the foot of the cross, as it were, to know our home. One of the things that we really enjoyed was inducting or installing, rather, our new bishop, Dan, and that, that was a tremendous blast. Um, I, I won't get into all the detail because I'll really get carried away down some rabbit trail. But it was a joy for the parish to host it. And as mentioned last Sunday, none of this could have happened apart from the volunteers from this community. So again, we thank you. But here was the kick for many of us here, that this national gathering gave us a renewed and fresh appreciation for this church and the hall and the property. See, many, if not most parishes across Canada that were represented at Synod get together each Sunday. They meet in schools, they meet in rented churches, they're in coffee shops, they're in all sorts of situations. And so the eyes of our sisters and brothers, we saw again with fresh eyes, this place. You know, we come here regular. I mean, look around you. <laughs> look around you. We're, what, four and a half blocks from, from Parliament Hill. We're just on the edge of university campuses here. And called to be in this building. Look at to the beauty that points to the living God, not only our creator, but our rescuer. Think about step one of our renovation and the commitment to implement more in the future. Just think about what an opportunity that has been for us, this motley crew of who we are, depending on the grace of God. And many of you have told me, whether you've been here for 40 years or four months, that when you first entered this place, you had a strong sense of the presence of God, the peace of God, and the invitation from God's Spirit to come on bended knee through faith in Jesus and be still and to be in prayer and to join with others in worship of the living Lord. And so I, I want to share that for those of us who were engaged, we saw again through the eyes of others this 
place and what an opportunity and what a privilege it is. Well, how does this all translate for us? This church, as mentioned, situated so close to Parliament, surrounded by the expansion of all these new residences, this place has been what? Entrusted. Entrusted to us. Entrusted not to care for another pretty building in historic Ottawa, not, not to care for a museum, but entrusted for us to care for because it belongs to our Lord. That's wild, right? Us puny little creatures, the creator of the universe has called us in Jesus to care for this place. He's entrusted us with it, to be a house of worship, to be a place and community that gives witness to the good news of Jesus here in the city, in the nation's capital, and it's set aside to declare God's praise and to be a hallowed place for Christians to mature and deepen in their faith. Why? So as we train to follow Jesus, we are better equipped, matured, and encouraged to live as Jesus followers in this community, in this neighborhood, in your communities, and your neighborhood. In other words, since the 19th century, we've been entrusted to manage care and continue to dedicate this place for the glory of, the, of God and the spread of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What an incredible thing. You know, I can forget that so easily. I come in, I park out back in my little private parking place. We come in through the uh, alarm system, turn it off, walk through the gal gallery, come in here to the church, go down to the hall, blown away. Do you ever forget that? What an amazing thing. And, and it's not only this church that we've been entrusted with. We see throughout Scripture everything that belongs to God that's been given and entrusted to us, we are stewards of. That is, we are managers of. We are those who care for it. This is why in some of the Christian uh, environmental movements, they call it creation what? Care. And what's care suggest? Management, stewardship, care of. And this is the nature of stewardship. In church land, many people, however, think the word is simply code for what? Yeah, see, you can say it. Money, guilt, brow beating. I recently came across an article in the Washington Post that may not be your paper, but I tr try to read as many as I can, where it said the most difficult things in this survey of, uh, I think, northeastern uh, US, the most difficult things to discuss ever is money. Right? I mean, it used to be it was sex. Politics, yeah, probably still in there a little bit. But now you bring up the word money. So, hey, how much do you think you give to that charitable group? Or the, how much do you think you might help out in some community organization that, I mean, it just gets dead quiet, doesn't it? But throughout Scripture, in both the Old and New Testaments, we see that the notion of stewardship is without a doubt about managing and giving oversight to whatever has been entrusted to us. So if someone dropped by your house, trusted you with their new computer or car while they're away, or maybe they asked you to house it for them, if you are now stewards, de facto, managers in care of these items or properties. 
And here's the thing, before I quit browbeating us all. Whatever we may have, it's because God in his grace and generosity has provided it for us. And when we ponder in just this truth, gratitude, thankfulness, can begin to shape us. And by the work of the Holy Spirit, we can be liberated from a number of things that we wouldn't expect. Anxiety, worry, bitterness about what we don't have, but instead know the joy of God's provision to us and to those he's called to love. Well, that's a pretty important thing to talk about when we look at Mark 12 this morning, isn't it? I mean, you can't really read that story at the treasury and the joy box, people dropping off all the change in, without thinking of this language of stewardship. Yes, you don't have to leave. No browbeating. We're just looking at the scriptures, okay? So I don't know what anybody gives here. So if you think I look at you too much, I, I don't know. I, I like your hat. I, I can't tell you anything else. So Mark 12, starting at 38th verse, we see that one day, and of course you can follow it in your Bible, one day Jesus was at the temple, seated just across from the offering box, sitting where he could observe the crowd as they deposited their money into the temple treasury. And some people dropped in very large offerings, and some people did it in a way that it drew attention. You know, like, here we go. I'm just going to put this in here, just like really quietly. So, of course, there are no bills, right? There, there's no paper. So it's kaboom or it's tinky tinky, something like that. So this is the situation. So along comes this poor widow, and she drops in two little measly small copper coins, the equivalent of roughly two loonies. Ping. Ping. And observing this, Jesus calls his disciples. Hey, guys, come over here. And calling his disciples to him, that, that language anywhere in the gospel tells us that what Jesus wanted to share with them is intended for them. And if it's intended for his disciples, we can assume that all subsequent disciples like us, you and I, we, um, it also applies. And so we who have committed our lives to Jesus and living with his grace-filled life, we can see that he's saying to us, hey, check this out. And he says this, truly I tell you, this poor window has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury. For all of them have contributed out of their abundance. And she out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. The widow puts in all she had, two small copper coins, not much. Still, Jesus commended, he praised her and said, this poor widow has put in more in the treasury than all the others that you see here, whatever their income level. So friends, there is here, there's, there's a lot to mine, as in all scripture, but I want to look at a couple just gold nuggets of truth that are perhaps more appropriate for us today than they have been in the past. Let's look at this full meal deal of instruction. First is that when it comes to the subject of money and our stewardship and management of it, 
we see that we are inclined, predisposed to give in direct proportion to our guiding, or sorry, our gratitude and our trusting faith. Just say that again, or 10 times, you tell me to be quiet. And we're inclined to give in direct proportion to our gratitude and our trusting faith. In other words, what we give, what we share is more often than not relative to the degree of trust and faith we have in God. And obviously, this isn't just about money, right? And by the way, if you're visiting today or you're not a member, just you can just please know nobody's going to give you some envelopes when you leave the church. Just be, be with us here today. We're inclined to give in direct proportion to our gratitude and trusting faith. What we give is more often relative to the degree of our trust and faith in God. See, popular opinion, and I would say, I mean, you can find this anywhere online, says that we give in proportion to what? Our resources. That we give in proportion to what we have. But research tells us, and again and again, that the wealthiest middle and upper middle class individuals and families, in most cases, give less, proportionately than lower-income homes. One journalist summarized the results of this two-year old Canadian study, and from time to time I'm going to use some stats that I have used before in other related sermons. He writes, study after study shows that the most charitable people in Canada, America and Europe, are not the upper class, not the upper middle class, not the shrinking middle class, it's the lower middle class. That is to say, families, not individuals, not a parent, two parents, families with a household income of $50,000 or less. That's, that's amazing. One journal recently reported a study where participants were each given $10 and the opportunity to help a person in need. The one who made $25,000 gave 44% more of the money than those making $150,000 a year. It's wild, isn't it? I mean, if I've heard this before. We give, in other words, in proportion to our gratitude and our trust in faith. And one of the reasons this is true is because we're afraid. And we worry. I mean, we worry. Look, what's supposed to happen in the new year? Recession, short recession, long, I mean, who knows, right? We can, we can speculate. But it's true that we have concerns about the markets, jobs being lost, an unforeseen emergency may arise, and it's good and biblical to make reasonable plans for the future. We see that all through the wisdom literature, that again and again. But worry can wind us up very, very tight and fill us with dread. And it can make us really tight-fisted. That's been my own personal experience. Knowing God the Father is the one who sustains our life, provides us with everything we need, allows us to live generously and even sacrificially. So again, Jesus points to the widow and celebrates her. Why? Because out of her gratitude, she enthusiastically practiced trusting God more than herself. As a widow. And this is a nugget of truth Jesus gives to us as his disciples. Friends, Jesus calls us to follow, trust him with everything, including our abilities and our skills, our care of creation, and yes, our finances. 
We are stewards of everything in the world God has entrusted us with. Yes, as Rebecca noticed earlier, even our children have been given to us to prepare them for life, to bring honor and know our Lord through Jesus. Well, here's another golden nugget of truth in Jesus' observation in Mark. And this can sound legalistic, but it isn't. And that is that God measures our gift relative to the size of the sacrifice, which is always relative, right? God measures our gift relative to the size of the sacrifice, which is always relative. Because the gift, the sacrifice, demonstrates in a kind of worship the priority of our life, who our true God is. Who is it that we most depend on and know loves us? See, the widow gave all she had. Now, as I mentioned earlier, giving everything away in the sense that she had nothing else left doesn't line up with biblical teaching about caring for family, those in need, saving some for the future, for widows and orphans. And although the temple itself would provide for widows in need, money and food, the point in Jesus' observation, this very strong contrast, is that what she gave proportionately is much better compared to those with much. The widow was sacrificially generous in what she gave. And it was obvious. Because generosity most always involves a sacrifice, doesn't it? It could be in mundane things. You may be having family coming to stay with you for Christmas. Well, that's a real sacrifice. You're going to be able to do that this year? Well, maybe something like that. But it comes out of love, right? It's in return. It's to love. And say, your children are really expensive. Do you love your children, your stewards of your children? Warren Buffett would agree with this, and I know he's not Jesus. In an interview he gave just after donating $2.5 billion to the Gates Foundation, he said, my gift does not change my lifestyle one bit. I still go to the movies I want to go to, eat at the restaurants I want to die at. But what about the person who gives a gift that requires that they can't go to movies or to eat out? He says, they are the true givers, the true heroes of generosity. Again, Jesus watching this all happen in real time, notes some of them are giving out of their abundance, but this poor widow out of her poverty. In other words, she trusted and tr gave back to God sacrificially in gratitude and with love for him. I've, uh, every time I come across this, and you've heard it before, but you know that Jesus talks about money more than love? That's weird, hey? But we don't want to talk about it. So it's got to be important, I would think, don't you think caring for widows and orphans too is discussed fairly heavily? Scripture tells us our view of money tells us a lot about what we think of God and for all of life for that matter. And quite poignantly, poignantly the Bible tells us that the way we treat money 
provides a diagnostic instrument for measuring what our heart values. Our heart, of course, is the executive center of our will in which we act out of. Where we invest, in other words, we hear in Matthew 16, where we invest, mostly, our heart will follow. In other words, our heart's love is found in whatever is most valuable to us. And if you don't believe that, a simple example would be to take somebody's phone away from them for a couple weeks. You see, our relationship with God is shaped by our attitudes and priorities in life. The digital giving platform Tithely, which is a great site to go to, puts it this way, our giving is an outward expression of deep spiritual commitment and is an indication of a willing and grateful heart. God measures our gifts relative to the size of sacrifice. It's not earning, you understand that. Effort does not preclude, erase grace, right? So the question we've all been asking for, let's uh, pass the offering plates around. And I gotta get a new jet, you know, for ministry, that sort of thing. <laughs> the question is how much should we give? Well, following the example of the widow, if we're called to give proportionately to our faith and trust in God, rather than our faith and our abilities, our assets, our education, or perhaps our trust in the market of fear, and if we're called to give sacrificially, how much should we give? Again, relative. Mother Teresa once said, if you give what you do not need, it isn't giving. You know that story about someone brought some chickens, turkeys dropped off at the church for the Christmas dinner. And um, he said, well, that's very generous. He said, well, it's the bottom of the freezer. It's seven years old. And I thought, I'll just take it by the church. You guys could use it this year. <laughs> Should we give until feels good? It feels good, as some marketer, marketers say. Well, perhaps, but it's a different kind of feeling good than we might expect. Harold Percy, you may know him, he uses the analogy that it's like the good feeling that comes after the long-distant runner has passed the pain threshold. In other words, after it's hurt a little bit. In other words, we give until it's more than comfortable, maybe a little more than safe. And if you're tracking with me, you'll appreciate this isn't a formula, right? Like the widow's attitude to giving, it requires the practice of trusting faith. Notice Jesus did not say to the widow, don't be stupid. You've given way too much. But rather he says, what a beautiful heart. What, like, what an amazing person. So, give, we give until we're not comfortable and it doesn't seem safe to stretch our trusting faith. And let me just add to that the, the, uh, everybody's favorite, and that is to train and step up to the discipline as worship, as giving alms as spending time in prayer is. Train and step up to the practice of tithing. Really, I mean, I, I don't brush it off as a biblical teaching that doesn't apply to your family. 
If you are formally an official member of the parish and you vote and vote budgets and stuff, you already know this is part of our membership covenant that we've, we've made together with the Lord. In past sermons and teaching, we've learned from Scripture that we're called to have as our aim a minimal goal of 10%. Right? That's the minimal goal. Like, so what does that suggest? You're working toward, right? You're working, so maybe you don't give anything back to the Lord, but you're working toward, maybe you start with 1% one, 1 for 25 years. No, I'm just... But you, you train. It's like if you're lifting weights or something, you add a little bit, you run a little bit more of a distance. You buy less Starbucks coffee during the week. Although it sure is good. In past, again, in sermons, we've looked at this minimal goal of 10%. We are moving in that direction, but we also know that God may call some of us, perhaps many of us, to give more. I remember hearing uh, the guy, I'm sorry I can't remember his name, who started the, um, oh, Habitat. You know the Habitat housing they build? And he was a very successful business person. He made a decision one day. He said, I'm now going to live on 10% what I have, and I'm going to give 90 away. Well, obviously we can't all do that. But you see the proportionate dynamic there? We also read how God prefers that we be cheerful givers. And I have a feeling that that takes practice. Don't you? I mean, there's nothing worse than going to the gym if you're 50 pounds overweight. Is there? Even 25, 10 pounds, whatever it is. Or you want to run and you can't make it 15 feet because you have cardio problems. But if you lose that 25 pounds at the gym, and if your spouse or friends at work says, you look amazing, you are ripped, are you sad? No, because you've trained towards it. You're thankful to God. You're, you're thankful for the friends who said, keep going. So he doesn't want preachers. He doesn't want anybody to lay guilt or manipulate, to respond with something that ultimately will bring cheerful heart. Maybe news to you, but you know as a parish we tithe 10% to our outreach partners and Dale, if you can put up your hand Dale, Dale is the chair of that ministry and that 10% goes to support ministries around the world, it goes to support a number of ministries here in the city including workers on campus. So, as a church, we're tithing. Wouldn't it be great if we were giving out 50%? We're equipping ministries? Just, just a thought. Wardens, no, I'm not going to suggest that at next year. And then in turn, the diocese we belong to, it also tithes to the province. That is the Anglican Church of North America. And then the Anglican Church of North America ties globally around the world to support churches and ministries and evangelism. And so with fear sounding like a televangelist, our website, peterpaulottawa.com, even provides 
four different ways you can give to the church. We even have an app for your phone. And no, I'm not going to get into the details of air conditioning and that, but it's, it really is a good thing to know. Let me just uh, share something. Um, when we talk about uh, stewardship, and hang in there, friends, we're coming. I only have 15 more pages, and we're, we're going to wrap it up. One day, a member of the, of the parish came by. He stopped the pastor at the office, and he was really irate. He was quite angry, and he complained that he recently heard the church had purchased six new brooms for the church in the hall. I mean, he was livid. This is an expenditure he thought was completely unnecessary. The pastor was surprised at his reaction and mentioned it to the treasurer, and I won't point out our treasurer here. He says, it's understandable. How would you feel if you saw everything you gave in the past year tied up in six brooms? <laughs> That's just to throw a little bit of, you know, kind of humor in the midst of Jesus' word. You remember Jesus said in Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit. It's in a passage we can easily skip over and shy away from, but it's a helpful term because it's helpful to see ourselves as blessed when we're poor in spirit. What is this poor in spirit? Tim, Collar offer, Tim Keller offers a few words for what Jesus means on that. He says it means seeing that you're deeply in debt before God. You have no ability to even begin to redeem yourself God's free generosity to you at infinite cost to him, that is, in the death of Jesus, was the only thing that saved us. But many people today resist teach, teach, uh, Jesus' teaching about our spiritual poverty. Keller writes, on the contrary, you believe that God owes you something. That he ought to answer your prayers and bless you for the many good things you've done. Even though the Bible doesn't use the term by inference, we can say that you are middle class in spirit. You feel that you've earned a certain standing with God through your hard work. You may also believe that the success and the resources you have are primarily due to your own industry and energy. I get that. Don't you get that? Why well, do I want to work for all this? But for some of us this morning, you may feel you already give enough through your giving of time and talents and cooking, and all the many things leading here at St. Paul's. And for that, this parish community, I can say on everyone's behalf, we're truly grateful. This renovation wouldn't have happened apart from your generosity. And it's true that stewardship is about much, much more than money, and there's no doubt about it. We steward all those things we talked about earlier. But here it is. It's never less than money. It's all those things. But it's never less than money. In gratitude, we are large and sacrificial and are giving to God what is always his anyway. So scripture, as I wrap up, tells us we've been called to be stewards of our lives, everything we've been entrusted with, all of creation, our resources, our time, our ability, our skills and opportunities. But to hold back our money, <clears throat> God's money, however generous we may be with others in our life, to quote Malachi 3, is to steal and rob from God. So, as an old guy I used to know, fiery little guy said, hey Brent, you can't 
oh, give God, it's impossible, which I resented at the time. In a few weeks, a few moments rather, we will be taking up our weekly offering. And yes, we have a budget, which we are behind on. But this isn't a money grab. It is, like all worship, bringing our sacrifice and praise to the God of grace who has redeemed and continues to rescue us and all of creation and history in and through Jesus Christ our Lord. Isn't that amazing? We're going to collect the offering in a few minutes. We're going to sing an offertory hymn. Isn't that interesting? Because we're worshiping God. Here it is. And then the offering plate will be brought forward. And any idea what we're going to say? Can you flip it up on the slides, not to put you on the spot, just after the offertory? And we can even practice. And then I'll bring out some puppets, and then we'll, we'll move on. <laughs> Yours, O oh Lord, let's say this together. Yours, O oh Lord, is the greatness and the power, and the glory, and the victory, and the majesty. For everything in heaven on earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. And here we go. All things come from you, and of your own have we given you. May God be praised. He's an awesome God, and trusts us with much. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.